we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast at the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian and the director of the center. And our guest this week is Kent Lundgren. He's a member of CIS's board, but maybe more importantly, has long experience in the immigration field. He's a retired high-level Border Patrol officer. And I wanted him to talk a little bit about something he thinks, and I agree, isn't really discussed enough, sort of an elementary issue of why do we have immigration laws at all? Because there are, in fact, basically anti-borders or open borders folks who think that, you know, there's basic limits as far as people with Ebola or belong to Al-Qaeda shouldn't be let in. But other than that, everybody should be able to get in. That's not a very widely held position, but it does exist among top spokesmen, elites, lobbyists, what have you in Washington. And it has more effect on the actual outcome of immigration policy decisions than you would think. I asked Kent to come in and talk a little bit about that. So, Kent, thanks for coming in. And if you could tell us, first of all, a little bit for the listeners, what's your own background? How'd you get into immigration? How long you've been doing this? I joined the Border Patrol in 1968. That's before the long downward spiral on the border began. And I finally retired in 2002. So, 34 years of immigration experience during which I held every officer position in the old immigration service and the Border Patrol. What kind of things would that be? In other words, what did you do? Well, in the Border Patrol, I was a journeyman Border Patrol agent and retired, or left the Border Patrol, I should say, as an assistant chief in Puerto Rico. During the interim years, I was an immigration inspector at the border, checking people in and out of the U.S. I was a special agent and then a supervisory special agent and then a supervisory special agent for anti-smuggling, and then also running the criminal alien group in one of the major cities of the U.S. And so this is all in the old INS. Yes. And so in a sense, to put it in the terms today, you were both in what would now amount to Customs and Border Protection and in ICE, in a sense, right? In other words, you weren't in either one of those, but the things you did were covered by both of those two now relatively new agencies. Yes. I held five different positions and was involved in every aspect of immigration enforcement for those 34 years. Interesting. So one of the things that I thought I wanted to talk about is, like I said earlier, the basic question of what do we even have immigration policies for? What's the point? And you had some thoughts on that. I was wondering if you could share them with us. That's a question that comes up a lot if you are in public speaking. I did a fair amount of public speaking over my career, and that was an extremely common question. Why does it matter? Well, immigration laws exist to protect the United States, both the country and the individual Americans. And anytime you hear me say Americans, I'm talking not just about U.S. citizens, but also aliens legally entitled to be in the United States. Who are basically like 
citizens in training almost. In other yeah, words, yeah, you know, precisely. Right. Well put. Anyway, the folks that I generally talk to, inevitably the question would come up, why does it matter? And over the years of working in all those areas, I refined it down to four basic reasons. I'll go through them, but I'll tell you in each case of the four, we have ignored the rationale behind the law, and we are paying a price and have paid a price in the past, and will continue to do so if we don't wake up. So what's the first one? Well, These aren't necessarily in order of importance, right? They're just uh, four issues that you think we need to talk about. I just reach in a bag and grab one out. So public health is a big issue. And most immediately in the past, COVID came to us probably by an alien vector. And I will use the term alien. It's a legal term defined in law. Probably by an alien visitor from China. We had the disease pop up. In Seattle, I happened to be within two miles of where it first showed up up there recently, but that was another matter. In any case, the president invoked his powers to say, we are not going to let people from China come here for very good reasons. He was pilloried for that, of course. But in any case, it was a perfectly legal thing for him to do and a prudent thing for him to do. And now at this stage, looking back, we can see that it was very badly handled from the beginning in terms of the response to what he thought should be done. Also, there are diseases showing up in places around the United States, particularly along the southern border, that we have not had to cope with for decades, perhaps even generations in some cases. They are coming with people who are allowed to come into the United States without having a health screening. Once upon a time, that didn't happen. But because it came to be regarded as unkind, I'll put it that way, perhaps, then that's fallen by the wayside. Some newcomers still have to have health screenings, right? Permanent immigrants coming in? Yes, they do. Right. A person coming in with an immigrant visa to take up residence here does have to have a clean bill of health. So who doesn't? Anybody else. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Someone entering illegally, someone coming as a tourist, although in some cases that's not the case. And people from places where a disease is prevalent such as Ebola, for instance, that's history for the moment, not to say it won't come back. But we should always make sure that people coming to this country represent no health threat to those around them when they're here. And the next item is public safety. That is a big, big issue now, far more than people know. It's hard not to be accused of racism or nationalism or one of the other nasty words if you talk about the fact that Aliens, legal and illegal, do bring crime. That's not at all to say that they bring a lot of crime or that they are essentially criminal. They are not. By and large, they're okay folk. However, every ethnic group that has ever immigrated to the U.S. has brought its own criminal element with it, whether it's organized such as a mafia or back in the Irish days, back in the early 19th century, the Molly Maguires, and It continues. There are Asian gangs that are highly organized and highly dangerous. We see constant reference to the cartels. Yes, that's true. They exist. They are trying to come here, and they are successfully coming here. One of the things that particularly concerns me about that is that drug distribution is well organized. It cannot exist in any substantial fashion without having corruption 
of society to support it. And I don't just mean law enforcement corruption. The banker that's required to, on the one hand, the government says he's got to report certain transactions. And on the other hand, if he does, he may wind up nailed to a door. So the corruption goes beyond law enforcement, again, to say that. And it can reach deep into society. What does it take to get a prosecuting attorney to just misfile a charge? And all of a sudden, the dates passed that it had to be filed. And so the case is dismissed. That can go on. I, I won't proceed. But public safety is a bigger issue than we know in deeper ways than we know. And it's more than street crime, which is bad enough in itself. Much of the gang activity that goes on, gang shootings, are carried out by ethnic gangs, foreign gangs. And the issue here really isn't, as you suggested earlier, it's not really that immigrants are somehow more likely to be engaged in crime. They might or might not. There's actually conflicting research on that. The fact is, though, that these are people from overseas and none of them should be criminals. So if one of them is a criminal out of the million, maybe it's harder to find, but that person shouldn't be here. And so it's not so much whether immigrants are more likely to be criminal, but why are any criminals who are immigrants being allowed in in the first place? Exactly. And not just allowed in, but when you have sanctuary cities, well, in the first place, it's corrupt to become a sanctuary. To the chief of police, for instance, who tells me, and I have heard it, oh, they're okay, and we don't want to scare them and make them not come to see us. Well, first of all, most of them are from countries where the police are utterly corrupt anyway. And in saying, we are going to ignore this law, that's corruption in itself. Law enforcement is enhancing this attitude of corruption. It's sort of almost recreating the thing they were getting away from to begin with. Precisely. Also, they're giving up valuable tools in law enforcement. And I'll give you an example from my time as a special agent and supervisor. We did this a lot for law enforcement 20 years ago. If they have a bad group that they want to get into, and one or two of them are illegally in the country, then they can call me. I'll go pick that person up. And at the very minimum, I will remove the headache from the community by shipping him back home. But on the other hand, I can also say to him, how would you like to stay a while? All you're going to have to do is talk to us and turn him into an informant. And that's been thrown away as a tool, and it is more valuable than people understand that aren't in the business. It's almost, in a sense, at least at the kind of street level, it seems like it's even more effective than, say, using the tax returns against Al Capone kind of thing. You know what? In other words, it's another tool that police have that in sanctuary cities, they're basically just not using. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And the prosecutors who've ever functioned under the old ways will tell you what a tool they lost with that because they could make a plea bargain offer to a guy. And, okay, we won't send you off to prison and then have immigration deport you if you'll just talk to us. Right. I remember hearing from agents that sometimes they would use, that the local police would use threats of immigration enforcement as a way of getting people to talk, kind of like what you suggested. There was an agent from New York City once said he was called in by the NYPD, and they told him ahead of time, we'd like to have you pass on this guy immigration-wise if he flips but we want you to come in and we're going to say, hey, here's the immigration guy. He's going to get rid of you if you don't talk. And he was willing to go along with it because yeah, they were oh, cooperating with the police. So in other words, it's not even a case, my point is, of 
maximalist immigration enforcement all the time. It's that immigration is a tool, and sometimes it may even be prudent to say, okay, we're going to take a pass on this guy if you're worth it and you turn over enough information. Yes, indeed. And in fact, most illegal aliens who are working don't have proper documents to have a job legally. Right. But if you want to be my friend, so to speak, I will give you work authorization that's as good as gold. Right, right. For 30 days at a time or whatever. Right. There's actually a format for that now, U-visas, although that seems to be pretty widely abused, quite yeah. frankly. But the tool definitely seems valuable. And even without that, using immigration enforcement as part of the toolkit for local police doesn't mean they're doing immigration enforcement. It means they have it available. For instance, if you have any experiences of this, I'd love to hear it. But sometimes you know the guy is bad, but you don't have the good information. You don't have enough evidence. The prosecutor is like, yeah, I can't go ahead with this case. I'm sure you're right. He's a bad guy and he's guilty. I can't prove it in court. I can't indict him, in which case the cops may be able to say, well, okay, well, let's at least deport the guy or get him on immigration violations of some other kind, which would be easier to prove. That's true. And there's a further element to that. If a person has a criminal record at all, and I'm talking about in the case you described, for instance, where the prosecutor doesn't have a full case. Okay, yes, we can send him away. And if he comes back to the United States, that's a federal felony. Right. And there are places where the U.S. attorney will prosecute, some that don't want to hear about it. But if the guy has a criminal background before the case that the prosecutor can't make, we deport him. And if he comes back, that's 10 years. Ah, okay. So that's pretty serious. I ran the, call it ran in my, run in my trap line back in Colorado when I was a special agent. I covered all of Wyoming and most Colorado and some of Utah talking to police all the time all over. And it got to be just kind of a joke that I would pick up a guy in Gillette, Wyoming for having sold dope. And I'd tell him, look, I know you're going to come back. Don't come back to my jurisdiction because if you do, I will be here next day. I hear about you. Go to Omaha, you know, go somewhere <laughs> else. But anyway, yeah, it was on the spot enforcement is what it amounted. Interesting. Interesting. So we're talking about your sense of sort of the reasons kind of basically why we even have immigration law. I mentioned public health. I mean, it's protect the American people and the American nation. First is health issues. Second, public safety. What's your third issue you have there? National security. And we need look no farther than 9-11 if you want. Just stop it right there. But 9-11 was committed by people who were admitted legally to this country to go to school. Right. None of them were legitimate students. They were here to do what they did. Mm-hmm. And if we pay due attention to who people really are and what they're up to, then we could have avoided 9-11 entirely and several other attacks in the United States. I go back far enough that there was a time when alien students had to report to immigration. And we would check up and make sure, in some cases, sometimes random sampling, sometimes based on information. We'd make sure they're doing what they said they came to do and not anything we didn't want them to do. Meaning, were they studying the, what they had said they were studying, that sort of thing? Or yep. whether they were studying at all? At all. Especially that. And that's something that's in ICE's wheelhouse now, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program. But as one of my colleagues, John Fury, has written about a number of times, ICE just doesn't take this responsibility very seriously. At anymore. all. Yeah administering foreign students was turned over to the foreign student advisors in the college. Mm -hmm. 
And with that, we lost all track of who was where and doing what, unless something specific was brought to us. But as you noted, ICE just doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And that's foolish. And that's exactly the word. Foolish not to care what these folks are doing. Because it's not always friendly to the United States, and it's not always good for the U.S. people. Now, this was 9-11. That's a long time ago. As relevant as it is, are there any more sort of recent examples of national security threats that our immigration laws should be employed to try to limit? Like Chinese students, yeah, that exactly. sort of thing. I mean, right. I was trying to figure out how to phrase into that. But yes, Chinese students are invariably, I won't call them spies because that's not the case in every case. Sometimes it is. But they are all prompted and given some basic training on becoming agents of the Chinese government while they are here. And they will conduct espionage. That doesn't mean spies and secret cameras and stuff like that. But it means if they are learning about something particularly that the Chinese government would like to know that we know, then they've got to report back. And they are given basic training in spycraft. I keep using that word and it doesn't quite fit. But they know how to work with a handler, for instance, at least in concept, even if they're not being run by a handler actively here. So that's probably the biggest flaw we've got in our system. I'm not sure we should have Chinese students here at all, and I understand what that means in terms of impact. But it's a hazard we have to understand and be able to mitigate in some fashion. Perhaps we should not accept students into particularly sensitive programs where they will move from their education and on to sensitive jobs. Right. Now, you were in the agency, I guess. I wondered if you have any either personal experience or ideas on the first time this really hit people in sort of more modern times was during the Iran hostage crisis. True. Because President Carter put out the word that he wanted to know how many Iranian students and all this, when that hostage crisis happened. And apparently it took like four years for INS to get an answer about how many Iranian students there were. That's because it was not the old INS that was keeping track of the students. It was right. the foreign student advisors. Interesting. And they might make their report every six months or a year, or maybe they won't. And right. it simply wasn't being tracked. Right. And we paid the price and we will continue to do it. It'll have something like that will happen again. Right. Almost certainly. Unbelievable. And then the fourth of your reasons where you kind of boil down the reasons to even have an immigration law is the broader economic issue, jobs, what have you. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, the law of supply and demand has not been repealed. And like diamonds as opposed to sand, jobs are the same way. When you get an oversupply of labor and the United States has an oversupply of labor, it keeps wages depressed. And the fact is, I haven't looked at this number for a year or so now, but as recently as a year ago, wages in the construction industry were bought no more in terms of purchasing power than they did in 1975. Right. So much for upward mobility. Yeah, exactly. And that's because as long as there is an excess of labor, there's no reason to pay higher wages. And that's what we've got going on in an awful lot of areas in the U.S. Now, that people, when they hear that, they tend to think of a guy with a hammer. and that sort of work, or the guy doing yard work for you, whatever it may be. How long has it been since you saw a teenager with a lawnmower on somebody's yard? Yeah, yeah, a long time, I, huh? I mow my own lawn. <laughs> so anyway, taking it to a higher level, the use of foreign workers 
in particularly the IT industry through the H-1B program, it's a travesty to me because the people brought to this country to do that work are supposedly coming over because a U.S. employer could not find Americans to do that work, supposedly. Now, that's probably some of the biggest outright fraud that's ever gone on, but it has become common practice. But what makes it a particularly egregious practice is that the people who come to this country are not necessarily trained for the job they're coming in for, but they not only are coming in to take a job that already exists, it's already occupied by an American. The one that sticks in my mind is some year or two ago. Disney brought in 600 computer people, IT people. Three or four years ago at this point. Was it four? Yeah, yeah, okay. Before COVID. Yeah, okay, right. But the practice continues. And the folks, the Americans who were being laid off, were told, you have to train these replacements because if you don't, you're not going to get your pension. We're going to put a poison pill in your resume and you'll never work again in the industry. Right. That's so wrong, I can't believe anybody thinks it's all right. Unfortunately, it's legal, though. I mean, because even a lot of when this happened and was reported, and the reason the Disney example sort of got people's attention is because the New York Times deigned to take a look at it and wrote a front-page story, and I got to give them credit, it was a straightforward story. Because it's the New York Times, it must be true. You had a lot of congressmen fulminating, and then their staff looked at it and said, "Uh, actually, Mr. Congressman, this is perfectly legal because you all voted to make sure that it was legal to do this sort of thing, which they did. But the use of foreign workers to displace American workers in existing jobs is just wrong. How can somebody not see that? The only way you can not see it is if you're an internationalist. Right. If you believe in the complete mobility of labor, as I heard it put one time. Mm -hmm. That really is a sad state of affairs. Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty. The reason we haven't whipped it yet is we keep importing reinforcements for the other side. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well put, well put. And the interesting thing is, specifically you're talking about the H-1B, is that the four kind of headings you boiled down for the what we protect the United States and its people for through immigration laws, public health, public safety, national security, and jobs, they're not necessarily always that separate. And the H-1B thing is what reminds me is that that's a job issue and we're protecting the jobs of Americans and the opportunities for young people you know, to go into jobs like that. But also, there is a national security angle to that because if you've got foreign workers who aren't even green card holders, I mean just ostensibly temporary foreign workers, on H-1B visas, but also working in some kind of sensitive, either defense-related or dual-use kind of technology, that's also a national security threat potentially, as well as a jobs threat. So there's a certain amount of overlap sometimes between these various categories. There's something that brought to mind a case I read about a few years ago that I get chills up and down my spine. A company in Texas that made the meals ready to eat, the MRA's soldiers' rations for the troops in Afghanistan, had hired illegal aliens from all over, including some from the Middle East. Now, boy, I'll tell you what, that's a terrorist dream. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You we could, got away with it, but yeah, uh, we were lucky. It wasn't through our own efforts that that didn't cause a problem. Exactly so. Yeah. So just to finish off, you were a Border Patrol agent for many, many years. I was. You also sort of have a multi-generational Border Patrol family. I mean, we don't want to get into details, but 
you've got family members who are also are or were in the Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sort of top of your head thoughts on what the heck is going on at the border now? Well, it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole other show, but just the short version, maybe. Hey, I, yeah, my both my son and my grandson are, have a Border Patrol history. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago or so, I wrote an essay for another organization, and I said it is the goal of certain elements in this country to reduce the border from being nothing but a historical artifact. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are seeing. Never mind the motivations for those who would see it, so figure it out for yourself. But why would anybody believe that no border is a good thing if you want to have country? Countries have borders. And unless those borders have rules for people who want to come in and who do come in, then the border's meaningless and the country dissolves. And in a sense, to go back to the main part of our conversation here, the borders are a prerequisite for the kind of protection measures that you're talking about. In other words, if immigration is going to protect public health or national security or public safety or jobs, that doesn't mean anything if there's no border to do the protecting, if you will. Right. And I want to close with a statement that I feel compelled to make in these days. I and every immigration officer I ever knew, Border Patrol, whoever, every one of us believe in the strength that immigration brings to this country. But we also believe that we should make certain that whoever comes to this country will in some fashion contribute to that strength and make this a better place to live. Let's keep out the ones who inevitably few but nevertheless dangerous, those who would do us harm. Mm -hmm. If we can stop them before they get here, all the better. If we have to send them home when they prove out not to be worth our time, then let's do that too. Right. Neither one of which we're doing right now, unfortunately, Precisely. in any significant way. Immigration enforcement has utterly collapsed. Both at the border and inside. Throughout the country, the country yes. Right. Do you hear from... Border Patrol agents? I mean, you've been out for a while, but do you still, uh, you're on one of the Border Patrol kind of alumni associations as well. So do you hear from agents and supervisors who are still working in the field? Intermittently, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes secondarily. Right. But yes, first of all, the morale is being terribly damaged, of course, right. because guys signed up to be a Border Patrolman because they wanted to protect the country. Right. They're being told to undermine the country now. They're turned into Walmart greeters, basically, yeah. as uh, welcome I, wagons. Yeah, I can't make myself say that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Unfortunately, I, know. I mean, yeah. in some cases, that seems to be the way it is. It does. So, interesting. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, Kent Lundgren, retired, longtime Border Patrol agent and the whole variety of immigration roles he filled, is on the board of the Center for Immigration Studies. And we had him in to talk about the basic question of, what the heck do we have immigration laws for in the first place? Which is, I think, a question, as Kent suggested, probably isn't addressed enough when we talk about this issue. We kind of take some of this stuff for granted. And the disaster we're seeing in immigration, even politically, suggests that we really can't take these kind of basic rationales for granted. We need to talk about why we do this. In other words, however valuable a wall is, for instance, you need to explain what the point of it is to begin with, not just how tall it should be and all the rest of it. So, And that goes for all kinds of other immigration control measures as well. So thanks for coming in, uh, Kent. Appreciate it. Glad to do it. Thank you. And finally, I wanted to draw attention to a report that came out recently from Axios about potential plans by the Biden administration 
to give IDs to illegal aliens who cross the border and are released into the United States. The Biden administration has released more than 1 million illegal border crossers into the United States since Inauguration Day. And these people are using asylum claims, almost always unfounded, unwarranted asylum claims, as basically a gambit, a gimmick to get past the Border Patrol and be released into the United States under this administration, even though federal law specifically requires that illegal border crossers be held in detention during the entire course of any proceedings, an asylum hearing or what have you. They're not doing that. The administration is just releasing these people at a rate of something like 100,000 a month now. Well, the report that came out recently is that the administration is considering giving them government photo identification cards, and they're presenting this as a way of a better way of keeping track of them or helping them keep track of their asylum hearings, that sort of thing. But the fact is that it will actually serve as a way of, if you will, documenting the undocumented. In a modern society, you have to have some kind of government-issued identification card in order to function, not just to get on airplanes, but you know, just to cash checks and basic things all the time. Unlike European countries, where usually there's a central government, single government ID card, in the United States, the system has developed kind of organically so that it's based on the single federal government social security number, but the actual card is kind of farmed out to the state driver's license issuing bodies. So essentially, we have a national ID system, but it's decentralized and partly run by the states. But the fact remains, you need to have an ID card. And these illegal immigrants can't get driver's licenses. So the Biden administration is proposing giving them ID cards. And they claim this will only be used for keeping track of their immigration process. But that's transparent nonsense. There's just simply no question that once you give them a government-issued photo ID card, that becomes the document that they'll use for everything. It helps them embed in American society. We have experience with this. The federal law actually permits states to issue driver's licenses to illegal aliens, and some states do that. But the law also requires that the card be distinct in some way, although that's kind of gone by the wayside, and that it say something to the effect of not for identification or you know, for driving purposes only, something like that. Well, a number of years ago, Tennessee decided to issue these driver privilege cards, they usually call them. I think they've discontinued that. But when they issued it, the state said, oh, this is only for driving purposes and not for any other identification purposes. And literally, as soon as that happened, the state police spokesman said, yeah, but we're going to use it for identification purposes anyway. So the point I want to make is that giving IDs to illegal immigrants is an incremental step toward legalizing them. It's sort of a piecemeal baby step toward amnesty. And with these ID cards, they're not going to be able to, you know, vote or any of that stuff. I mean, you don't want to exaggerate what this is. Nonetheless, 
it is a clear, unequivocal step toward normalizing and regularizing the status of these illegal immigrants and helping them embed themselves here so that as a practical matter, regardless of what happens at their asylum hearings, assuming they even bother to apply for asylum and go through the steps for that, whatever happens, they're just going to stay anyway. And so this really does highlight how this document proposal, this this idea of giving IDs to illegal border jumpers is of a piece with this administration's perspective about the border, which is that their job is not to deter people from illegally crossing the border. It's to welcome those who illegally cross the border and to process them as quickly and as expeditiously and as comfortably as possible into the United States. And this apparently hasn't actually happened yet, but those who are concerned about immigration need to draw attention to this and highlight how this is much more important than the administration is presenting it. They're saying this is just a minor little bureaucratic paperwork kind of thing. You know, what's the big deal? What are you worried about? Absolutely not. This is uh, intended as a incremental step toward making it possible for the illegal immigrants that this administration is inviting to come into the United States to stay here and live here permanently. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, if you get this on any of the podcast platforms that permit rating or ranking or commenting, I'd appreciate it if you did that, positive or negative. And if you have any comments or complaints, feel free to just email me directly at msk at cis.org. Thank you.